calling on the Supreme Court. The lead starts right now. Former President Donald Trump is asking the Supreme Court to help fight his legal battles. He claims the cases against him are, quote, election interference, the same thing he's accused of in his third indictment. Then police identify another murder victim 27 years later in the Gilgo police uh, beach killings. So why wasn't the suspected serial killer charged in connection with her death? Plus, back on the map, Simone Biles returns to gymnastics for the first time since the Tokyo Olympics. Could she be eyeing a comeback at next year's Olympic Games in Paris? Welcome to The Lead, everyone. I'm Bianca Goladrika in for Jake Tapper. We start today with our law and justice lead and the aftershocks of Donald Trump's third arrest and arraignment. Today, the former president, who is facing charges for his attempts to overturn the 2020 election, called on the Supreme Court to get involved in the case. It's not clear exactly what Mr. Trump is asking the high court to do, but the former president claims the charges against him are, quote, election interference. Trump pleaded not guilty yesterday inside a Washington, D.C. courtroom, and his next hearing is scheduled for August 28th. Let's get straight to CNN Justice correspondent Jessica Schneider with more on this. So, Jessica, let's start with this new Trump request. Is this something the Supreme Court could even get involved in? Bianna, at this point, it really does just appear to be political bluster from Trump because we haven't seen any court filing, certainly nothing before the Supreme Court. However, in the future here, it's possible and quite likely that we will eventually see challenges in either of these cases, the 2020 election case from yesterday or the classified documents case down in Florida. Challenges to those could make their way to the Supreme Court. Also of note here, though, is the fact that Trump's track record at the Supreme Court when it comes to the 2020 election cases in general, it's not good. The Supreme Court has either rejected or refused to even consider every election challenge that he or his allies brought around the 2020 election. And all of that, Bianca, despite the fact that three of the nine justices are, in fact, Trump nominees. So not a good track record for the former president. Yeah, that's right. And for now, you say just bluster. Uh, We know the next hearing is set for August 28th. But what else do you know about how quickly the actual trial could start? So we saw it in court yesterday, the special counsel's team really pushing for a quick trial here. And we got an order from the judge, Judge Tanya Chutkin. She had that order today. Prosecutors have to submit their recommendations for a trial start date by next week, August 10th. After that, Trump's legal team will have seven days to respond. Now, Trump's team, they're already talking about the enormity of the evidence in this case and how they're really going to resist doing anything quickly. In court yesterday, we saw Trump's lawyer, John Loro, putting it this way to the judge, saying, obviously, the United States has had three and a half years to investigate this matter. And also, there are a number of agents and lawyers assisting the government in this proceeding. And all that we would ask, Your Honor, is the time to fairly defend our client. What's interesting, Bianca, is the Speedy Trial Act. It does say that trial should happen 70 days after a defendant first appears in court. That 70-day clock started yesterday. But of course, we're expecting Trump's attorneys can uh, motion to push that trial date out farther. They're going to follow their playbook of delay, 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 likely. All right, Jessica, thank you. Well, federal courts typically do not let cameras into the courtroom, but congressional Democrats are asking for Trump's trial to be televised. Tell us more about that. 
Yeah, you know, Bianna, more than three dozen Democrats, they've sent this letter to the administrator of federal courts, and they're asking that an exception to this rule of no cameras be made. They want cameras in the court for any trial of Donald Trump. So Democrats in this letter, they're citing the historic nature of both of these cases. And they're saying this, they're saying, if the public is to fully accept the outcome, it will be vitally important for it to witness as directly as possible how the trials are conducted, the strength of the evidence adduced, and the credibility of the witnesses. But I will note, Bianna, for years, people have been arguing to have cameras in both federal court all, all the way up to the Supreme Court. They have never been successful. So it's unlikely we'll see cameras in the court, but at least Democrats are trying. Yeah, even if it involves a former president, which is just uh, unprecedented. Jessica Schneider, thank you. Well, we just discussed the potential timing for Trump's trial in the January 6th investigation, but his current presidential bid is looming large over multiple criminal investigations into his political activities and business. Trump's legal team is pushing to delay his trials as long as possible, which ultimately will impact what you know or don't know before casting a vote for president. So we want to walk you through where each case stands right now and what comes next. The special counsel is also leading another federal investigation into Trump. This one related to his handling of sensitive government documents he took with him to Mar-a-Lago when he left office. Now, a federal grand jury in Miami charged Trump with 37 criminal counts in June, including obstruction. On July 27th, three new charges were announced against Trump. The judge in this case had previously set a trial date for May 20th of 2024. That is after most states have held their Republican primaries and two months before the Republican National Convention, where Trump is likely to be the party's frontrunner. Then there's the Manhattan criminal case related to hush money payments to cover up a sex scandal during the 2016 presidential campaign. Trump in April was charged with 34 counts of falsifying Trump Organization business records related to reimbursing his lawyer for payments made to Stormy Daniels, an adult film producer and actress. A judge scheduled the trial to begin in New York state court on March 25, 2024. That is in the midst of the Republican primaries. And then don't forget Georgia, where Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is expected to bring charges this month in her investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election in that state. Now that we've gone through that, let's discuss the latest indictment right now with former Trump White House lawyer Jim Schultz and Tom Dupree, the former principal deputy assistant attorney general under President George W. Bush. Gentlemen, thank you both for joining me today. So, Tom, let's begin with you. It is clear that Trump's legal team is testing multiple strategies here, including pushing for a later trial. Trump's lawyer, John Loro, references what he says is a massive amount of discovery in the case and said, quote, we are going to have to go through information in order for us to properly address when a trial date should be set. So how does the judge weigh the need for Trump's team to prepare with the prosecution's desire for a speedy trial? Yeah, it's a difficult question. Uh, you have to balance those two interests, and then you also have to take into account the rapidly approaching election date. So there's a whole multiplicity of considerations the judge is going to have to weigh and consider. And look, I think the Trump team, I mean, in fairness, I think they have a decent argument that they do need time to prepare for this case. It's going to be a very complicated case. And the Justice Department has been conducting this investigation for several years. And of course, the president or former president is also going to be defending concurrently multiple other criminal trials, as well as a host of civil trials. So under all of those circumstances, I think he's going to have decent arguments that this trial needs to be delayed. Whether he can persuade this judge, though, to push the trial date beyond the election, I think is a difficult question. And I think it's going to be a pretty close one for this judge to resolve. 
Yeah, Tom, just sticking with that, I, most legal experts that I've heard say that the likelihood that something happens, a trial begins in the next 70 days, is slim to none. That having been said, you do hear from Trump's team saying they've had three and a half years to put this together and to work on this investigation. But when you look at the timing, Jack Smith was just appointed by the attorney general last November. So that's not necessarily the case. They didn't have three and a half years here. That's Jack Smith is a newcomer, um, but I, I think certainly the special counsel's office benefited from the investigation that the January 6th select committee carried out. So I think from the defense's perspective, they have been kind of under investigation for a very long time. The other thing I note beyond those that Judge uh, Jack Smith, I think, did a good job in doing his best to try to streamline this complaint, to get it on kind of a rocket docket, to get this thing tried mm -hmm. sooner rather than later. He did that by charging only President Trump, not charging the other alleged co-conspirators and doing his best to slim down what I think is going to be a very complicated case. But he's at least giving it the college try to slim it down and get this thing on a fast track. Jim, the federal judge who will preside over the case, Judge Tanya Chutkin, uh, intends to set a trial date we know now for the first hearing on August 28th. What do you expect the Trump team to do if that date is set before the election or, or even hypothetically before the Republican convention? I think it's likely that it does get set before the Republican convention. That being said, that doesn't mean that it's going to be tried before the Republican convention. She's going to set a discovery schedule, and, and she's going to set a discovery schedule where documents from the government are, have to be turned over. The defense is going to probably want to subpoena a lot of the January 6th commission information to see if there's anything exculpatory there. They're probably going to want to look at the grand jury testimony, which is something that doesn't happen usually. But in this case, because of the new unique charges, they might want, to might want to look into whether it was charged appropriately. So there's a number of discovery requests that are going to happen. That's going to take several months to get through. And then she's going to set a motion schedule that will also include pretrial motions, motions to dismiss, motions for discovery, motions to change venue. All of those things are kind of come into play. That's where you'll see some of the, if you see a First Amendment challenge, you'll see it there. And I think this judge is going to want to be thoughtful and write on some of these issues because they are unique charges that haven't really been tested. So she's going to want to write a bit on those. So that could take some time as well. So I think you're looking at the spring, I do think there's maybe a better chance that this case gets done before the documents case because you don't have the classified documents issues and motions like that. Yeah, I've heard others say that it may happen before the documents case too. Tom, last quickly to you, there's the issue of jury selection. Trump's team is saying that, that he can't get a fair trial in D.C., even arguing that it should be moved to West Virginia. I'm not going to ask you about the likelihood of that happening, but what is the likelihood that you could have a, a jury in Washington, D.C. That, that is somehow unaware of everything that transpired at that, on that day? And would that make them biased in some point? Well, I think the likelihood of finding people who are just completely unaware of what transpired on January 6th is probably remote to zero. That said, the test really is whether or not people, notwithstanding whatever knowledge they have of January 6th, can nonetheless remain impartial. And I think that's an easier bar to clear. I think uh, both sides, particularly the defense side, is going to want to focus heavily uh, in examining jurors in the process where you have a chance before the jury is selected to question potential jurors to really suss out if they can be independent, if they can approach these facts neutrally. That's where I think the defense is going to have to focus its efforts rather than on trying to get this case transferred. All right, Tom, Jim, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Well, coming up, new revelations in the mystery of the many murder victims found at the Gilgo Beach. 
Police now identifying a new victim, but no new charges yet. We'll tell you why. Plus, the moment a Ukrainian drone carrying 1,000 pounds of TNT hits a Russian warship. We'll explain the startling moment in the Black Sea up next. In our Law and Justice lead, Karen Vergata. That is the name of a Gilgo Beach murder victim who had previously gone nameless. But justice remains elusive as police announced no new charges in her death. Vergata was a 34-year-old New York City resident when she disappeared in 1996. She was one of the 11 victims whose remains were found scattered across Long Island's South Shore between 2010 and 2011. Let's go to CNN's Miguel Marquez with more on this. So, Miguel, 59-year-old Rex Huerman was charged last week with murder in connection to three Gilgo Beach victims. But as of now, police are not linking him to the killing of Karen Vergata? They are not, but they're not ruling him out either. They held a very short press conference out in Long Island today to say that they had identified this woman. They had identified her some time ago. Uh, Miss Vergata went missing on Valentine's Day back in 1996. Later that month, a part of her body, her legs and her feet uh, specifically, washed up uh, in Fire Island, not too far from Gilgo Beach. But it wasn't until 2011 that they found part of a skull on Gilgo Beach. And through forensics and DNA, they were able to match those two sets of remains. Uh, And they figured out who she was about a year ago, but did not release that information because at the time they were investigating Rex Hewerman. This leaves open some possibilities that perhaps Mr. Hewerman will eventually be charged in this crime. Remember, the investigators went meticulously through his house uh, out on Long Island for about 12 days, almost two weeks, uh, using ground-penetrating radar, digging in his backyard, and just taking out reams and reams of evidence uh, from his home there. Um, And uh, it is possible that they will charge him or that that there is another killer or killers out there. Because remember, in all, there were 11 sets of remains out there. There have been charges in three of them, and Mr. Hewerman is uh, the lead suspect in a fourth. But these others are still a mystery. Biana? Still notable that this victim, Karen Vergata, has finally been identified. As we noted, Miguel, it's been more than a decade since the discovery of these 11 victims. There are still three are still unidentified, and an arrest in connection to three others was only made last month. So why did it take so long to see any sort of movement in this case? This is a big question, and everybody out in Long Island has uh, an idea of it. It wasn't until they established there was a new DA and, and new authorities in Suffolk County specifically that came in, opened this, and started using uh, DNA evidence and started re-looking at the case. And it was, it was information that was in that case file to begin with that allowed them to get to where they are. So they hope that they will be, be able to find the killers of all the others. Biana? All right, Miguel Marquez, thank you. You got it. Well ahead, Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny defiant today in court facing a new prison sentence. Navalny says he's willing to pay the price. We'll tell you just how high that price is. Topping our world lead, you're looking at a Russian battleship taking on water near its port in the Black Sea. After Ukrainian sea drones attacked the ship hundreds of miles from their territory, 
While Ukraine hasn't officially taken responsibility, we can show you the exact moment of the strike with a video from a Ukrainian drone. Ukrainian source telling CNN almost 1,000 pounds of explosives were on that drone right at the moment of impact. Then the feed is cut out. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh is in Zaporizhia. And Nick, despite seeing that video, Russia still claims that it repelled the attack. I'm curious, how are they countering what we all see with our own eyes in this video? I mean, to be honest, after a while now, the Russian military denials of things that have evidently occurred carry less weight. Indeed, even Russian bloggers have said how clearly a compartment of the Olenogorsky Gornyak ship appeared to have been fully flooded. Uh, another Russian analyst has referred to this attack as being a quantum leap in the conflict, essentially suggesting that Russia is going to have to find an entirely new way uh, of taking Ukraine on if they're able to launch attacks this far. Now, it's important to recognise where this is, Bianna. Uh, startling to see satellite images of a ship apparently listing all the way in Novorossiysk on the Black Sea, part of Russia, frankly, that must have felt just a matter of weeks ago entirely impregnable. And so now Ukraine, using this ingenuity, using clearly a drone here, able to pass back what seems to be not live, but simultaneously fed as it approached video stream of this attack to provide some kind of evidence for it, uh, using drones that are able to carry half a metric ton, a thousand pounds of explosive, startling that this kind of damage can be inflicted so deep into Russian territory in places uh, that, as I say, they must have felt were impregnable after the attack, uh, not claimed by Ukraine, but likely Ukraine on the Kremlin's domes a, f- a few weeks ago, and then attack on Moscow skyscrapers in Moscow City, and then the attack by what appears to be another Ukrainian drone on the Kerch Bridge between Crimea and the Russian mainland. Utterly startling that this uh, level of attacks are indeed occurring, perhaps a bid by Ukraine to show some sort of military impetus, even though the southern counteroffensive here is perhaps going slower than they would like. But all in all, Biana, absolutely not what Vladimir Putin thought would be happening in this war of choice that he started nearly 18 months ago. Yeah, it's stunning to see that ship in that video just listing there. Uh, Nick Payton Walsh in Zaporizhia, thank you as always for your reporting. Well, even as 2024 Republican presidential candidate Chris Christie made a surprise trip to Ukraine to meet with President Volodymyr Zelensky and reaffirm U.S. support today, for the first time since Putin's illegal and brutal war began, a new CNN poll shows that a majority of Americans don't want Congress to send more money to the war-torn country. Fifty-five percent of Americans say Congress should not authorize additional funding to support Ukraine, while 45 percent think aid should keep flowing. Steve Anderson, a retired U.S. Army Brigadier General, tells CNN that the White House could be doing more. Listen. When I see polls like that, it disappoints me greatly, and I believe it's because the Biden administration simply hasn't sold the war to the American people like they absolutely need to do. Also today in Russia, two decades of additional prison time for resolute Putin critic Alexei Navalny. The malnourished opposition leader says the extremism sentence is not intended to intimidate him, but rather any Russian dissenters. The hearing unfolded behind closed doors with broadcasts with poor audio quality and was being held abnormally within the high security prison rather than in a Moscow courtroom. CNN's Nick Robertson looks at the astronomical price of challenging Putin and why Navalny seems so willing to pay it. 
entering a courtroom that looks as flimsy as the legal case against him, Alexei Navalny and his legal team line up to hear his almost predictable sentencing. 19 years. The judge's words, utterly unintelligible in the press room next door, convicting Putin's harshest and most persistent critic of creating extremist communities. Charges Navalny denies. He was neither bowed nor cowed, even shared a joke with his lawyer. After sentencing, using his telegram channel to tell his supporters, 19 years in a special regime colony, the number doesn't matter. The verdict is not for me, it's for you. They want to frighten you. Not for the first time is Navalny being made an object lesson of the cost of challenging Putin. Poisoned and almost killed with the deadly nerve agent Novichok almost three years ago, an attack he blames on Putin, which the Kremlin denies. He barely survived, recovered in Germany, then returned to Moscow six months later, despite the certainty of what awaited him. He was arrested charged with fraud and other offences he says are bogus and is currently serving nine years. In jail, he says, he's been denied sleep, kept in isolation, intentionally made sick and almost completely cut off from his family and lawyers. Putin's brutality has taken its toll. Navalny has lost weight. There are no calls, no visits, no human conditions. He's allowed to write... Uh, 35 minutes per day with a pen and paper. Um, he's allowed to have two books. These actions are clearly an open strategy to destroy my father's um, physical health and maybe mental too. There's absolutely no way the colony would take these drastic measures without uh, having a nudge from the Moscow government. Putin, it appears, intends to silence not just Navalny's supporters, but the man himself. The new sentence, expected to be served in one of Russia's harshest and remote penal colonies, will cut him off from the outside world. It is a price, he said at his trial, he would be willing to pay. And he really seems to be in a test of wills with Putin. Right now, Putin has the upper hand, but it seems that Navalny is essentially betting his life that that's not going to last forever. In fact, he said in that, that Telegram uh, channel statement, he said very clearly, um, this is life. It's a life sentence, but life is as long as I live or as long as this regime survives. Diana? Yeah, as you noted, he looks so gaunt and thin, and mm. yet uh, you can't help but see him smile. You know, it's his message to say to the Kremlin, you may break my body, but not my spirit. Nick Robertson, thank you. Well, coming up, new reporting on former President Barack Obama's concerns about the 2024 campaign and the warning he gave to President Biden behind closed doors. Undermining both our military readiness and our national security. That's how Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin is describing the impact on U.S. forces from Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville's months-long blockade of all military confirmations in a new memo. 
Austin also describes the extraordinary step the department can take, such as assigning lower-level officers to lead critical organizations in an acting capacity amid the continued holds. CNN's Oren Lieberman is following this from the Pentagon. So, Oren, what other steps is the defense secretary outlining here for you? Beyond it, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin called these holds and the effects they're having unprecedented in a memo outlining how DOD would handle this situation. Another step he said they would have to take, three and four star uh, generals and admirals would have to remain in their positions, but may also be called upon to do the next job above them in line at the same time as the military figures out how to handle this. Here's what Austin said earlier about the effect that it's having not only on those senior officers, but also cascading down through the military. The failure to confirm our superbly qualified senior uniform leaders undermines our military readiness. It undermines our retention of some of our very best officers, and it is upending the lives of far too many of their spouses, children, and loved ones. And as an example of a not-as-senior officer having to do a job above them, a defense official tells CNN that a one-star official is now leading the Missile Defense Agency, which is in charge of the U.S.'s layered ballistic missile defense. Beyond that should be a three-star position. So there's a big difference in experience necessary for a critical role in the military there, and that's just one example. Yeah, that is very uh, notable there. In the meantime, the Army has now joined the Marine Corps as another branch of the U.S. military without a Senate-confirmed leader due to Senator Tuberville's blockade. What are defense officials saying about that? So take a look at this picture. This is on the wall of the Pentagon here. This is a picture of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. At the top there, when this picture comes up, you can see the chairman and the vice chairman. But now there is a black portrait with the bottom left there. That was where the picture of General James McConville, the chief of staff of the Army, was until he retired earlier today. That's the second member of the Joint Chiefs now to have a vacant position that hasn't happened for the Army in 20 years. That other empty photo is the Marine Corps, which is functioning without a confirmed commandant for the first time in more than a century. Here is Secretary of the Army Christine Wormuth on how critical it is that these blocks essentially end. We need the Senate to act not only on his nomination, but also on the over 300 other general and flag officers across the armed services whose careers and lives are now in limbo because of this unprecedented hold. We need these leaders to, in place to ensure the readiness of our force, and we need to end all of this uncertainty for our military families. And yet, Tuberville has given no indication beyond it that he's willing to compromise or give any ground in this debate or, or position, which is clearly having an effect on the military, as you just heard there from the Defense Secretary and the Secretary of the Army. Yeah, he has dug in. Warren Lieberman, thank you. Well, let's discuss with Democratic strategist Alencia Johnson, along with former Republican Congressman Joe Walsh of Illinois. Welcome, both of you. So, uh, Alencia, if you can just weigh in from a, a non-Republican perspective, in what world is blocking this confirmation of top military leadership, something that Republicans can view as a winning political strategy, never mind that the defense secretary's warning there that it's impacting our own national security? 
I mean, look, you continue to see the Republicans using the things that we need to do in order to just keep our government running, to protect our nation, using this for political father, trying to make sure that they are belaboring the same point that they continue to make all over Fox News and that they don't trust the way that President Biden is running the country. When, as you mentioned, the defense secretary is urging the confirmation of this because our national security, of course, is the top priority. And this is coming from a party that talks about security and talks about a strong military, but will not uh, cooperate and push this confirmation through. I think the American people will remember this when it comes time for the ballot box next year. Joe, do you want to weigh into this? I mean, is there any rhyme or reason uh, for what's happening? No, Bianca, no, not at all. They're playing to their base. They're playing to their party. This is my former party putting party above country, quite literally putting their, they're so focused on these culture war issues to appeal to their base. In this case, the issue of abortion, that they're willing to, they're willing to use that to jeopardize our national security. It's party over country, and it ought to bite them in the butt politically. Let me turn to another issue, and that is a college board, Joe, is accusing the Florida Board of Education of effectively banning AP psychology in the state. This after the department told school districts that lessons on sexual orientation and gender identity could not be taught in Florida. This comes after the state adopted standards for teaching black history, which claims that, that some slaves benefited from the practice. I mean, are these controversies surrounding education actually beneficial to DeSantis in the Republican primary here? Well, he sure thinks they are, Bianca, because this is all he's been running on. Again, this is all the culture war BS that Ron DeSantis and sadly, too many people in my former party think the American people, it's the only thing the American people care about. I will say that a good chunk of the Republican Party base cares about this stuff to the point where literally banning books and banning speech plays, sadly, with much too much of the Republican Party base. And Alencia, I mean, DeSantis is doubling down on this. He clearly has intelligent advisors around him who are sensible enough to see that this isn't helping him in polling thus far in the primaries. What do you make of the fact that, that he continues to, to promote these policies? Well, it's clear that Ron DeSantis is going to do exactly what he believes he he should be doing. Um, and to the point that Joe is making, this is actually what sadly excites some of the Republican Party base, these culture wars versus the actual issues that folks should be focused on around the economy, around health care, around climate. So many issues that majority of voters actually want you know, a future president to think about. But Ron DeSantis is in a race to the bottom and he's not necessarily listening to his advisors because for whatever reason, he likes to get the airtime on Fox News. He likes to, you know, have the sensational headlines about his extreme policies, but they're going to hurt him and they're going to continue to hurt him in the long run. Joe, I want to get you to weigh in on this Washington Post report that former President Barack Obama warned President Biden earlier this summer about Donald Trump's political strengths. Obama reportedly expressed to Biden uh, this, I'm going to quote from him, and he's concerned, there's worry that Trump could be a more formidable candidate than many Democrats realize. 
What do you make of this? Because I always go back to when Donald Trump was running initially in 2016. It, it seemed at least early on, I remember an interview that President Obama gave to NBC News where, where he adamantly said he is not going to be the candidate. So what do you think he's learned from that to, to sense this level of alarm now to President Biden? Well, I think he's right, Bianca. I think what, what Barack Obama warning Joe Biden and hopefully warning the Democrats that there's this notion, right, especially today, Bianca, uh, Donald Trump has been accused of committing crimes to overturn an American election. And most of us think, oh, my God, then there's no way. I mean, because it's so terrible, there's no way he could ever get elected. Well, there is a way. And I think I, I think by, uh, Obama is right in trying to wake up the rest of the country to the fact that this whole thing of the deep state going after Trump really energizes Republican voters. Republican turnout will be through the roof next year. I think that's what Obama's really concerned about. And we'll see what role he plays on the campaign trail supporting uh, President Biden. Joe and Alencia, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, a group of white police officers once called themselves the Goon Squad. Now they're pleading guilty to a harrowing crime, the latest from Mississippi. We'll bring it to you up next. In our national lead, six white former law enforcement officers have pleaded guilty to charges related to the torture of two black men. CNN's Ryan Young reports on the unthinkable violence that unfolded just this year in Mississippi. And a warning, this story contains graphic content. They became the criminals they swore to protect us from. They allegedly call themselves the Goon Squad, a group of six white former Mississippi law enforcement officers giving themselves that moniker because of their alleged willingness to use excessive force and not to report. Now they pleaded guilty to federal charges related to an assault that, according to a charging document, included nearly two hours of torture, physical racist and sexual abuse on two black men after a white neighbor complained. Several black males have been staying at the property and the neighbor had observed suspicious behavior. The officer who received the complaint directed an investigator to take care of it. On January 24th, six law enforcement officers entered victims Eddie Parker and Michael Jingles' home without a warrant. Handcuffing the victims behind their backs and using racial slurs and derogatory language when yelling at the victims discharging a firearm in order to scare and intimidate the victims, holding them down and pouring cooking oil, milk, alcohol, and chocolate syrup on their faces and into their mouths, forcing them to painfully and involuntarily ingest those liquids, striking one of the victims with objects, including a metal sword, a piece of wood, and a wooden kitchen implement kicking one of the victims in the ribs, tasing the victims dozens of times with department-issued tasers, and stealing personal belongings from the house. It ended with Jenkins getting shot in the mouth, the bullet lacerating his tongue, breaking his jaw, and exiting out of his neck. For months, there was a lot of doubt about the official account of what took place. The Mississippi Department of Public Safety releasing a statement the day after the incident saying only... The Mississippi Bureau of Investigation is investigating an officer-involved shooting, but that didn't encapsulate the horror. In July, I spoke to Parker, Jenkins, and Jenkins' mother and toured the home where the crimes occurred. I crawled here to this spot. 
And they, uh, they uh, started uh, beating me here and tasing me. As you can see, you know, blood spots and all. And my blood spots there. Jenkins' injuries make it difficult for him to speak. It hurt. I'm embarrassed. Has anyone from the department ever reached out to you and apologized? Have they ever asked for anything at, at all? Rankin County Sheriff Ryan Bailey spoke at a press conference about the incident in late June. I believe in my heart that this department remains one of the best departments in our state, and I'm committed to doing everything in my power to keep this department on a correct path moving forward. Yesterday, he issued an apology and said he didn't fully understand the gravity of the crimes committed until recently. Federal authorities began their review in February. They, along with the state of Mississippi, were able to secure guilty pleas of all accused. Not only did they brazenly commit these acts, but after inflicting serious bodily injury by firing a shot through one of the victim's mouths, they left him lying in a pool of blood, gathered on the porch of the house to discuss how to cover it up. What indifference, what disregard for life. A life that will never be the same for either of these two men. It's hard to stand right here, knowing, you know, what happened right here. Justice is what it all, you know, what it all boils down to. I'm just like them, you know, whether they're they in uniform or not. Very tough to listen to. The officers pleaded guilty to multiple federal charges, including conspiracy against rights and deprivation of rights under the color of law. When you sat there and talked to those two men, you understood how frustrated they were. They were trying to get anyone to listen to them about this, and for a while, no one was listening. In fact, media coverage was really small at one point. And then the idea that now they have this moment, they have a moment of truth, and you hear about this, the torture that they endured, it's almost impossible to understand. Talking to law enforcement officials across the country, they can't believe this even happened, and wondering whether or not there'll be a larger review of that entire sheriff's department in the coming weeks. Bianca? It's horrible and heartbreaking to hear that victim say he feels embarrassed. Brian Younger, I know you'll stay on top of the story for us. Thank you. And some of the victims in this case will be joining Laura Coates on CNN tonight. Make sure to watch. Well, in lighter news, Simone Biles returning to gymnastics for the first time since the Tokyo Games. Could Paris be next for her? But first, here's CNN's Wolf Blitzer with what's next in the Situation Room. Hi, Wolf. Hi, Bianna. Thank you very much. The former Trump national security advisor, Ambassador John Bolton, joins me live right here in the Situation Room tonight. We'll get his thoughts on the historic third indictment of the former president, as well as Trump's not guilty plea today in new charges in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents investigation in Florida. I'll also get reaction from one of Donald Trump's rivals for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. Asa Hutchinson will join me live. All of that, much more coming up at the top of the hour here in the Situation Room. In our sports lead, the GOAT is back. Seven-time Olympic champion Simone Biles is scheduled to compete to qualify for the national championships tomorrow. This could be one step towards the Olympics next year. She hasn't competed since the 2021 Tokyo Olympics, where she stepped down from several events. Well, this is my favorite story of the day. No matter your taste in music, this next story will rock you. Sing it, we will. 
According to the Guardian newspaper, which calls it a killer queen sale, Sotheby's is getting ready to auction Freddie Mercury's belongings. He originally left them to one of his best friends when he died of AIDS in 1991. All sorts of crazy little things are going on the auction block, from clothes, lyrics, and art, even to his Tiffany's silver mustache comb and the piano, where he composed hits like Bohemian Rhapsody. And all about 30,000 objects are expected to go for upwards of $14 million. What a cool story. And be sure to tune in to State of the Union on Sunday morning. CNN's Dana Bash will be talking to 2024 Republican presidential candidates Mike Pence and Chris Christie, plus Donald Trump's lawyer John Laura. It is 9 a.m. on Sunday at noon and at 9 a.m. And our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.